Actions, Responses to Trafficking, the podcast that shines a spotlight on new and established trafficking responses in the UK and beyond. Hello and welcome to Actions, the Responses to Trafficking podcast. I'm Catherine Baldacchino and this is a podcast where I speak to people who are working in different ways to respond to trafficking in order to help share their work with other people also working in the field. Today, I've spoken to Ewan Fraser, who is the Public and Corporate Affairs Manager at the International Justice Mission. We talk about the work he's doing with the UK government on international responses to trafficking, and also his work on responding to the online sexual exploitation of children. We spoke in December 2020. Please note that in this episode, we speak about IJM's work to respond to child abuse. We don't go into lengthy details, but understandably, some people may still prefer to skip that section. If you would like to avoid this content, skip the last half of this episode. Thanks for downloading this episode, and please get in touch with any feedback or further questions via At Actions Podcast on Twitter. Welcome back to Actions. Today, I'm speaking with Ewan Fraser, who is the Public and Corporate Affairs Manager at the International Justice Mission, IJM, here in the UK. Hi, Ewan. Great to see you. Hi, Kat. Great to be here. Yeah, it's been a while, so I'm really looking forward to this catch-up. Yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, I think it's been, what, since maybe January? Probably. Since so, yeah. Yeah. Great to chat. Loads to catch up on, loads of ground to cover. Um, let's get started with some information about yourself. Um, for those that don't know you, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, as you say, I work for International Justice Mission um, in the UK, normally um, based in our London office. But since this whole debacle began, I uh, have been up in Scotland, um, which has been nice. Amazing. And um Prior to that, um, prior to working for IGM, I, well, I started out on my, I guess, journey working in the anti-trafficking sector um, at university. I studied law and uh, in particular kind of human rights law. And mm-hmm. um, during my master's, I volunteered with Stop the Traffic. And it was just around the time that uh, legislation was coming into place in Scotland, um, the Human Trafficking and Exploitation Bill. And yeah, I did some campaigning around that and um, realised that I was probably more suited um, to the advocacy type work rather than the legal work. Um, And Mm -hmm. so um, sought um, that as a bit of a career change uh, before the first career even got started. I worked for the Human Trafficking Foundation then for uh, three years. So focusing primarily on victim support policy in the UK um, and then made the shift to to IGM a couple of years ago. Brilliant and that's when I first started working with you and I was first introduced to you I think in probably your first week at Human Trafficking (laughs) Foundation uh, so quite some time ago Um, and about this current role public and corporate affairs manager what does that involve what does that even mean? Sure so um, I guess my role is is kind of split um, in that half of my my job is engaging with the UK government on uh, their response to to slavery and other forms of violence internationally. So bringing some of the lessons which our teams around the world doing casework, um, bring the lessons of their experience um, and feeding that into um, helping to shape the UK government's response. And then also seeing how our approach and our um, our model can maybe help businesses on the other side of my job um, mm. to address risks of exploitation in their supply chains. So, um, yeah, quite a nice varied role, but all kind of about 
bringing the lessons from our teams to to people in in the UK who can hopefully bring about some change. That's so interesting. And that's such a great value of IJM specifically. And I, when I was speaking for, to Hope for Justice a few weeks ago, they mentioned the same about having international colleagues as part of the same organization and being able to share that learning uh, across borders is one of the greatest values, I guess, of having that international experience. Yeah, it's incredible. Like, so we've got um, got colleagues in doing the actual hard work in um, in I think thirteen countries, um, wow. and all really varied. And not all of it is related to to slavery. So mm. most of our offices work on issues of slavery and exploitation of some kind, but also violence against women and children, police abuse of power. Mm. Yeah, so a nice variety, and it kind of you know being able to give their kind of experience when speaking with government is is amazing they're really quite inspiring absolutely and I'm looking forward to finding out more about the organization in a minute um but firstly um you've worked in the trafficking sector for a few years as you've described what is it that motivates you about this field and now about your job in particular gosh um well I think I think what what um what prompted me to to work in this field initially was that I felt it wasn't an issue that got much attention so mm. when I was studying human rights, it hardly got, um, it was hardly covered, yeah. uh, uh, human trafficking, which struck me as odd. And um, the more I dug into it, the more I thought, well, this really kind of, this deserves um, my attention um, as just a really um, horrendous form of, of injustice. Uh, there's, I guess there's, there's just something about uh, aggressive, greedy people taking violent advantage of a person's vulnerability that I just yeah. um, find particularly difficult and want to push back against. So um, I guess that, that was kind of the starting point. And then I guess getting to uh, one of the great things about working at the Human Trafficking Foundation was getting to really know people in the sort of right across um, the anti-trafficking sector, um, you know, NGOs, academics, uh, law enforcement, and just the the sort of collaborative nature of um, a lot of people in the sector has been has been so encouraging and actually mm. like initiatives like this podcast are, are really kind of a really lovely sort of demonstration of um, the kind of the breadth of the sector and mm. um, the kind of the talent and dedication that's involved by people working in it. So it's just lovely to be part of that and to sort of play my little role in it. Absolutely. Yeah, and definitely agree and feel the same that there is clearly a lot of passion and a lot of um, compassion as well in the yeah. sector. And um, yeah, really interesting to hear about the initial motivating factors for you too. Um, so now let's take the opportunity to delve more into the organisation. Um, so International Justice Mission, can you give a short overview of what the organisation is and what it does? Sure. So as I say, we, we work on a variety of, um, of issues, um, not just related to modern slavery, but mm-hmm. violence against women and children, police abuse of power and modern slavery. But essentially, regardless of the type of casework that it is, the kind of basic premise is broadly similar in that we um, look to work alongside local authorities, local law enforcement and local government and support basically the justice system to respond more effectively to to violence, um, to provide more meaningful protection for individuals and vulnerable communities to tackle impunity. Um, Mm. And essentially what we do is that we partner with, um, with the local authorities right from the 
initial investigation, so helping to identify people who are in exploitation. We then partner with them to help them out when they're ready to, to leave exploitation um, and then into support. And that's often with partners or it's local authority care, depending on the situation. Mm. Um, and we will sort of journey with them for um, as long as it takes for them to, to kind of rebuild their, their confidence and their independence. And whilst doing that, we'll also work with, with the authorities again to see that traffickers are prosecuted um, mm. so that there is accountability. And essentially by kind of following a case right from that initial investigation all the way through, it kind of lets us see the um, the gaps and the faults um, and we can then help respond. So whether or not that's um, a lack of resources or a lack of will or a lack of um, understanding, we can then sort mm. of provide the training um, that's that's required. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, we kind of, it's kind of that two, there's kind of those two elements of making sure that survivors actually receive the protection that they need um, and also seeing that justice is done in terms of laws being enforced and we've kind of seen that when a justice system is kind of properly equipped to proactively identify uh, instances of trafficking um, and know how to interview survivors in a way which isn't going to re-traumatise them and knows how to look after their interests and their welfare um, and you couple that with accountability that um, you can kind of make real changes and, and cultural changes where that mm. impunity has become uh, quite embedded. Um, yeah, we've seen quite sort of amazing shifts in that. That's so fascinating. And that is something that I've always found particularly interesting about IJM's approach and model because of that real holistic view of uh, trafficking response. So you work quite closely with authorities, but equally uh, ensure that there's aftercare and support programs in place as well. Um, and I guess one of the key reflections coming to the surface uh, in the trafficking sector uh, is this more holistic view of, of understanding um, the recovery of people from exploitation and the need to connect that with proper support programs. And this is something that really comes through a lot in your activity. So can you flesh out a little bit more of the effectiveness of how that works and, you know, the connection of working with authorities, yet also ensuring that there's enough time and space for people afterwards to, you know, recover and, and rebuild? Yeah, I think um, survivors' welfare obviously has to be the, you know, the first priority. Um, mm. And, you know, we have we've developed... A kind of a tool for helping to guide um our our aftercare so mm. um when someone sort of initially comes out of exploitation um there's a sort of a risk assessment tool essentially um to make sure that that support can be tailored to to their individual needs mm. um and i guess that sits alongside the fact that and in, in many cases those individuals are the ones who hold the evidence um and if there is to be accountability if there are, if those traffickers are to um face any consequence then survivors need to be supported to to give that evidence and they need to know that they're doing that in a way which isn't going to have negative repercussions they need to mm. have worked through their trauma um to be able to express it freely um and confidently um mm. and you know they need to give informed consent to do so and, and all that. And that all takes time. Um, mm. But I think, yeah, I don't think that the two things can really be um, disconnected. I think that mm. they're kind of intrinsically, um, well, not, well, in many cases, intrinsically linked. Um, that getting yeah. justice for their trafficker is um, 
is part of that recovery, is part of yeah. being believed. Um, it's quite important. And I think more and more authorities are starting to acknowledge, actually, that victim care and support is going to be helpful because of all of these things right exactly like you've said they hold the evidence that you know we have a higher chance of people cooperating with these processes you know if they feel that their needs are properly being supported and you know often I guess some authorities will you know recover people from exploitation without care and support programs in place and they could be exited into the harm when that happens so um yeah yeah, i think that's quite a compelling case for why these things need to be connected um and the importance and and the the value of of ijm providing both just helps i guess that really smooth transition from one aspect to the next yeah yeah i think like i mean we've seen i mean we don't do our our casework in the uk but we um it's something that's a an issue which I, i guess has been a live issue here is you know mm. the best practice being for NGOs to accompany police if they're going to visit a, a location where they believe that their people being exploited mm. um, to make sure that there is that um, safe voice and that yeah. person that is going to certainly prioritize the welfare and make sure that support is is given um, as needed because and there's often sort of been police saying that we sometimes have to be investigator and social worker at the same time and that just doesn't work um so yeah. having NGOs present from that very beginning so that you make the most of that um very first contact I think is really crucial and really acknowledging I guess exactly like you've just said that the roles that people need to perform when they're in these settings so internationally, IJM does that work. And in the UK, your work is more policy focused. Uh, yeah. Um, so so I guess there's six offices like ours in the UK, and they do a mixture of awareness raising, fundraising, um, and also um, advocacy. So mm-hmm. that's where my role comes in, um, and taking um, the lessons from that casework and sharing with with UK government and helping to sort of shape and inform their response as much as possible. Um, And so we're going to delve into two aspects of your work in particular. Um, So firstly, we're going to talk about your work with the UK government on international responses to trafficking. And then secondly, we're going to talk about your work on responding to the issues of uh, online sexual exploitation of children. Um, So in the first instance, can we talk a bit about the international trafficking responses? Can you tell us more about what that is and what that work involves? Sure. So obviously, I think we're quite fortunate in in many ways that um it's probably not said enough that the uk has um made modern slavery a priority in recent years and you know done a fair amount to raise Mm. this issue on on the international stage and i don't think i don't think we should kind of take that for granted things like you know things like the call to action at the general assembly or um in the universal periodic review or even the the supply chain requirements and the kind of international mm. implications of that um, in terms of raising an issue. Um, I think that that is, you know, credit where it's due for that. Um, I think yeah. certainly the thing that the question um, which then arises is in turning that into action and impact and actually seeing a reduction in the prevalence of modern slavery. And I think this is something which has come up um, in the recent report from the ICAI, the Independent Commission on Aid Impact. So they have done a review of uh, international spending on modern slavery and identified a few areas uh, for improvement. Um, 
And so I guess I'm hopeful that that will spark, I suppose, the next the next phase of mm. um, the international modern slavery movement, which is very driven by seeing the, the tangible impact. So the ICAI highlighted things like um, like impact and strategy and um, gaps in our understanding around modern slavery. So, um, yeah, I guess I would like to see a government response which which really seeks to kind of address those. And, and mm. I appreciate the context in which we're operating of COVID and Brexit next year and everything, but to really yeah. kind of go about these issues with, um, I guess, the urgency that I think they're, they're probably due. Mm. Yeah, absolutely agree. And um, you're right, the UK has been quite uh, trailblazing and is in very many ways leading responses to trafficking internationally. What's your kind of view on the UK's influence on other countries and the role they play motivating other countries to respond to trafficking? Yes, I think we have seen some evidence of at least that initial first step of um, helping countries to engage with the issue. Um, So things like like the call to action, which has had, Mm. I don't know how many uh, countries signed up to it, but quite a few countries have signed up for the call to action. Um, British embassies have begun to to take on the issue and have had some some local responses and varies from country to country, but that can be um, relatively influential and can have a positive impact Mm. in terms of at least a convening role. So I think, I don't think that should be kind of understated. Um, mm-hmm. As I say, I think it then the question arises as to, and so what? Um, mm. Now that we've got your attention, what do we do with it? Um, yeah. And I think that that is, you know, making, you know, the call to action is great. How do we then make sure that those who have signed on to it are following through um, and are actually delivering? And I think, I think the UK is a, obviously a, an interesting point in time in terms of global standing mm. and you know that's obviously been redefined by lots of things but the, the you know the, the FCDO um, the merger sorry of the foreign office and DFID into the FCDO will obviously I think well I think have a quite a big role to play in terms of influence um, mm. or determining uh, the level of influence and I guess my hope is that modern slavery can be one of those issues where the UK still kind of looks to um, to drive up standards um, mm. to kind of build on what has been done in recent years. Um, that's my hope, and that's I guess what we're we're pushing for because I think the UK, having sort of carved out a bit of a niche for itself on the global stage on modern slavery, can then play a really important role. Yeah. And so it's really interesting to hear about the approach of, of you know, even um, high commissions and embassies being able to sort of promote it within their context. And that seems to be getting some traction as well. Um, in terms of country collaboration and models of, of one country sort of helping another country to develop a response, are you seeing any good practice examples or positive collaborations that you can share? Well, actually, I think the embassy... Uh, an ambassador point is is another factor that we we kind of don't know but will be interesting to see how it plays out i think with the with the new fcdo ambassadors and embassies are going to play a bigger part in what direction they go in they're going to have more say mm. and more control so that will be interesting to see how they choose to use that influence and that power um so that 
again will be something else to to kind of speak into and hopefully modern slavery will be prioritized um and perhaps might even allow for um responses to be a little more tailored to local context um Mm. we have to wait and see exactly how that how that plays out i think in terms of collaboration one kind of quite interesting area is in our work in the Thai fishing industry Mm. um so that is a kind of an unusual project for us um it's it looks to address exploitation in the Thai fishing industry where workers are brought from across the region um trafficked from across the region and that work is actually a partnership with Walmart who have obviously identified that as a an area of um high risk in their supply Mm -hmm. chains and have partnered with us to help um address that and i think that's quite an interesting approach from them because there's obviously the minimum requirements we obviously in uk terms know about the the transparency and supply chain requirements but it's kind of interesting to see a company kind of going a step beyond what is um Mm. that requirement and kind of looking at the broader context that they're sourcing from um and looking to to change that which i think is interesting and also i guess the collaboration across um or across the 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 trafficking corridors um in the region so we've got a an office in in thailand and an office in cambodia um and so it's interesting to see that collaboration work to address trafficking networks at both ends in terms of supply Mm -hmm. and demand um and i think that can have that can have real impact in terms of uh, providing you know um it's not simply a case of addressing the problem in Thailand, but looking mm. at what are some of the vulnerabilities being created in in Cambodia um, or Myanmar mm. or mm. wherever else workers are being exploited from. So interesting. Can you talk more about the Walmart collaboration and the work on in the Thai fishing industry? Because I just think that's such a interesting aspect and something that does get mentioned in the UK, but I guess without much attention. So I just think it would be really interesting to find out more about how that collaboration works and IJN's role in that partnership. Yeah, so I guess a few years ago now, I can't remember exactly when, but there was obviously a fair bit of um, publicity about exploitation in in the industry. And Mm. Walmart provided funding for an independent study, which kind of looked at looked at the problem in greater detail. Um, So who was being exploited? What sort of boats were they being exploited on? Where were they? Where were the workers coming from? What were there particular mm. ports that were particularly vulnerable? Kind of a whole thorough study, um, mm. and involved, you know, interviews with um, fishermen and uh, just a lot of the the details are really, really kind of troubling. Um, mm. Of those um, who were interviewed, I think that the the researchers could quite happily confirm, not happily, easily confirm that about forty percent had been trafficked. That another fifty percent. Right showed signs of trafficking so only about 10 percent um actually had fair wages and and good working conditions so just a huge problem and i think you know the thing which stood out for me from reading the research was that six percent had seen a co-worker murdered at sea um so i think um yeah that i guess working in the the sector you kind of you get used to hearing terrible stories and yeah. terrible statistics but when I guess when you hear about that kind of um, level of violence it still still stands out and it it doesn't mm-hmm. uh, stop being shocking so 
that study was carried out and uh, following that, uh, Walmart co-funded us um, to set up an office in Thailand and begin our, our casework model. So we work with the Thai authorities doing the work which I described earlier of um, mm. helping to identify fishermen who are being exploited and helping them into support. Our teams in Cambodia are doing likewise of identifying people who have been trafficked or at risk of being trafficked. Um, and yeah, I think it's interesting because obviously there is the the transparency and supply chains requirement in the UK. And I think that has been an important first step in terms of, as I say, as an example of just kind of getting things onto the radar. Um, mm. There's been problems with compliance. There's been problems with quality of statements. But for a number of companies, it's helped get it on the agenda. And that's great. And companies can and should do everything they can within their own power. Um, mm. and, you know, agreements with their suppliers and doing their own due diligence and, and all that. But if you're operating in a context where workers' rights just aren't protected, where there isn't proper regulation or resourcing to, to make sure that workers are being protected, then those agreements and with suppliers risk being undermined. Um, mm. So I think it's I think it's an interesting approach um, for a bit for a company to kind of look not just at their own little piece of the the problem and solution um but to kind of mm. look a bit beyond and part of that is you know it's not just funding but it's kind of doing advocacy to the local government to again call for um improved response from from the mm. Thai government too and that really um resonates and and is just so compelling about the the role that businesses and and um that companies can play in helping to address this so so part of the responsibility or part of the impetus behind this doesn't only necessarily have to come from the voluntary sector or from authorities but can come from the business sector as well and they have a really fundamental role to play in this too yeah i mean some businesses <laughs> have problematic practices and there's no there's no hiding from that but yeah. um it's kind of undeniable that they um are so kind of intrinsically involved that they they certainly have a role to play um and can be a, a quite powerful and influential voice so um and i think as a kind of as a movement and as a sector we kind of need to gather everyone of goodwill um to be on board with it yeah Absolutely agree. And another thing I really like about this example that you've shared um, about this collaboration is that it highlights the role of the voluntary sector vis-a-vis police and authorities as well. Uh, and again, this is another area that I'm particularly interested in with regards to IJM's work, because this is something that you have extensive experience in. Can you share more about how do you manage that particular relationship, the sort of balance between supporting and collaborating with authorities and wanting to improve their practice and make them better um, and help them to carry out their role, but also being mindful of the perception that survivors have um, in engaging with authorities and, and perhaps being skeptical that maybe authorities are always looking after their best interests. Um, how does IJM kind of walk the line between these two uh, concerns? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a problem the world over. Um, so I guess what we aim to do is, you know, the, the, the context in which we're entering into are um, situations where exploitation, modern slavery is, is rampant. And, um, you know, there has been little or no attempt to to really um protect people who are vulnerable to mm. exploitation um and so you're i guess you're starting from a fairly low ebb and obviously that within that there's there's reasons for that there's lack of political will there's 
corruption, there's involvement in it in some situations. Yeah. So um, what we aim to do is identify those people who are as um, appalled by it as we are mm-hmm. um, within, whether that's within law enforcement or that's within government or whoever that is, to identify uh, those people and support them and enable them to, I guess, change culture um, and mm. change attitudes within their own organisations. That doesn't necessarily translate to the survivor um, and when they come out because they don't know any better. They've probably been told or experienced themselves um, abuse at the hands of at the hands of authorities. So uh, it's uh, it's a case of um, providing that expert support, um, working to build trust, which mm-hmm. is a which is a slow process. Um, accompanying, I think, from the outset is key. It's, I mean, I think it, so much of it comes down to individual relationships in terms of them being willing to trust us and know that we have their best interests at heart. Yeah, and I guess just really acknowledging the amount of time that that takes too, and that it's not an instantaneous thing. And you know, sometimes there is a need for for that to be yeah. over an extended period yeah, for sure. um, to help develop that trust and break down those barriers. Um, so this is all extremely interesting and I have a million more questions for you about your international work but because of time can we move on to the other aspect of your work that we wanted to discuss today um, which is responding to online sexual exploitation of children so can you tell us more about what that particular aspect of work involves for you? Sure so this work is I guess led by our team in the Philippines who Mm -hmm. are amazing Um, I, I, of all the pieces of work, areas of work that we work on, I think this is the one that I kind of, um, I guess I struggle to know how they do it every day. Um, it's, it's, it's really hard. Um, so just, I guess, to be clear, because there's, there's lots of um, variations and yeah. um, aspects to, to this particular form of abuse. But the, what we focus on primarily is the live streaming of um, sexual abuse of children. So sex offender in the UK paying to direct and live stream the abuse of a child in the Philippines mm. and what we've seen is that often those kids are really young often it's um, parents or family friends who are involved in facilitating the, the contact abuse in the Philippines um, so it's really difficult and, and as I say um, our t- so our teams in the Philippines previously worked on commercial sexual exploitation of children so um, I guess more traditional forms of of sexual exploitation um and what they've seen when moving to the online space is is that the kids are younger right majority i think are sort of under 12 years we've um, rescued toddlers and babies who are months old so it's it's really troubling um so that's why i i don't know really how they how they work on these issues every day um but they are working i mean you were talking a bit about collaboration earlier um so we were one of the founding members of the philippine internet crimes against children center or picac um and that's a collaboration of philippine law enforcement the uk nca australian law enforcement and igm um and so i think that that's been a bit of a game changer in terms of um, facilitating information sharing between those countries um, and helping with the response. And, uh, you know, again, what we talked about before, dismantling these things at source and demand. So, yeah, a very difficult area, but I think some an area yeah. where, and a, and a problem which is vast and we can't 
I think, possibly really know the size of it, um, in part because it's just not detected. I think that's one of the, the challenges, one of the many challenges in this is that that sort of live streamed abuse simply isn't detected. Um, mm. Just an additional challenge. Um, but hopefully kind of an area where we're seeing with the likes of PyCAC and actually just just recently some um, codes of practice from the from the government about responsibilities for, for tech companies potentially sort of um, at the point of turning a corner um, but it's a long way to go. And was that guidance from the Philippine the government of the Philippines or is that the UK government? Oh no it's the UK government yeah okay. so it's it's um, it comes from the online harms white paper um, and it introduces a new duty on it's not it's limit it, it covers all forms of of online um, grooming and uh, radicalization and all sorts of things but one of the things is um, online child abuse and we'll introduce a new duty on on technology companies to make sure that they're doing what they can to to make sure their platforms aren't being used it's only at the minute it's only a, a voluntary non-binding requirement or it will be but hopefully in time or the intention is certainly in time that it will become binding so that's mm. something that we will be kind of helping to to push for yeah that's extremely harrowing and the work as you say like your colleagues um it's incredible that they managed to to do that day in and day out and i'd seen i think my first exposure to this was um i think it was featured ijm's work was featured in a news um broadcast a couple of years ago and and there was your colleagues being interviewed about the work that they do and it seems that they're as you described quite embedded within local police forces and really um yeah detecting and trying to intercept and then rescue children from this situation yeah yeah so they work in really close partnership um and i guess so you know they're doing um that in the mm-hmm. philippines whilst we in in the uk are looking at addressing some of the demand so some of that is 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 involving the tech companies um but the uk is the third largest consumer of live stream abuse uh, in the world so if you don't address that that demand somehow then mm. you might solve it in the philippines but it will move somewhere else and so you know that there's obviously various elements to that i think the scale of the problem again is, is very hard to judge uh, we just published a report which looked at um, the issue of sentencing for those who are convicted of this in the UK. And there's a trend of, of quite lenient sentencing um, and a bit of a difference right. um, in terms of um, abusing children who are in the Philippines versus um, in the UK. Um, so that's, I guess, an area where we'd like to see um, some change. But there's also, you know, there's the scale is such that there needs to be a broader response than a simply law enforcement response. There needs to be elements mm. of, of early intervention. And I think understanding what leads someone into that abuse, um, I still don't think is, is fully understood. So I think addressing that and, and making sure that there's kind of early intervention services um, for would-be offenders is, is going to be part of part of the picture as well. Yeah, and that really does highlight the need to have very multifaceted, multi-pronged responses, as you, exactly like you're saying, a law enforcement response and preventative, and I guess also connects to the conditions in the Philippines where families are putting children into these situ- abusive situations as well. Um, what happens in the Philippines once the police intervene and once a child is removed from a situation like that? Do you, do you know what happens then and what happens to the families? So it, it, it depends. 
um, you know, sometimes it's it's the often children will be taken into into you know local authority care um, mm-hmm. if it is not safe for them to return to their parents then I presume foster arrangements or adoption um, mm. is looked at um, yeah kind of very much depends on parental involvement um, it's it's mm. one of those things which it's just kind of it's very hard to see what is a good outcome in this um, absolutely yeah at least in the you know in the immediate term mm. I mean we've seen some um, survivors you know grow up and, and and sort of flourish and are inspiring characters um but and and that's great that they have that they have overcome but um certainly in that mm-hmm. kind of immediate kind of crisis moment is um all options are difficult um and again requires mm. time yeah completely agree are you seeing any change in behavior or prevalence like is is it still too early to tell or are you seeing a, a sort of a trend um moving away from this form of abuse unfortunately not um i know i was saying in terms of um potentially turning a corner and for some of the um i guess frameworks in place um but this year has um been a little bit of a disaster for for this kind of abuse it's kind of created the perfect storm of um sex offenders lockdown um spending more time at home online philippines are still in full lockdown um families in in quite desperate situations it's just kind of the perfect storm and it's very hard to get a an accurate picture in terms of numbers or in terms of prevalence but um there have been lots of increases in reports Mm. and you know likes of europol and other sort of international bodies like that have um have expressed a lot of concern about what the lockdown has meant for this very particular kind of abuse yeah I think a lot of people share that concern and I think it's going to start to become more exposed in in coming months and years about what ha- what the consequences have been and the of the economic crisis that followed and the ramifications of lockdown and the further dangers and harms people have remained in um, or become more at risk of as a result of of measures to respond to COVID yeah oh yeah I think we've seen uh, you know increased vulnerability across our casework um, you know, in cases of violence against women and children and domestic violence, um, huge increases in vulnerability there. Um, and in modern slavery um, cases in our casework there too. Mm. But yeah, this um, online abuse feels particularly uh, stark um, and particularly troubling. Um, and it's, a, mm. um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a very difficult trend to reverse. Um, mm. But, you know, I guess... The hope comes from, um, I guess, the the fact that authorities and, you know, our, our teams have continued to work throughout the lockdown and provided support and been able to help over 100 kids out of exploitation this year. Um, so, you know, it's mm. there's a long way to go, but there are kind of little pockets of hope in there too. Yeah, and really important to hold on to those as well to kind of carry on with this. Um You've mentioned that there's been people actually recovered during this year, which has been clearly real positive. And one of the positives being that people are still continuing, your colleagues are continuing to work on this and and persevere. Um, can you draw on the other um, sort of summarizing good practices or good examples that might be helpful to share? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that international collaboration is what's going to be key in this. Um, mm-hmm. 
um, uh, yeah, that's obviously vital. I think the role for technology companies and, and social media companies is going to be really important. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another thing to say about this. This isn't something which is is happening on dark web. This is happening on all the forms of communication that we've all been using to to keep in touch during these lockdowns as well. Um, so there's a real, I think, onus um, on companies to be proactive and to be innovative. Um, as I say, mm. I think there's um, there's the real challenge around detection in this. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I, there are there are small pockets um, of, I guess, relatively small companies um, looking for innovative solutions to that. And there's all sorts of complications and privacy rights and what have you. But um, mm. you know, ultimately, child protection has to come first in these situations. So, um, yeah, there, there's there's. It's difficult to find the positives, but there are definitely some there. Uh, and there's some people really pushing to find solutions for that detection issue, which um, would just be a game changer. Definitely. That's really good to know. And the role of tech companies and businesses and, and the collaboration with um, police uh, forces, law enforcement across countries as well, uh, and that continuous support from IJM in the different countries kind of being that bridging sort of link between all the different actors clearly uh, is a strength too. Yeah. Unfortunately, you and that is all the time we have today. So we've covered hugely interesting topics and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your work with me. Thank you so much. It's been it's been lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Thank yeah, you. congratulations on the podcast. I think it's great. Um and it's a great celebration of a lot of hard work um, in the sector um, and a lot of diligence. So um, it's great to be part of it. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for, for your feedback as well. That is really brilliant. And you're exactly the target audience. So it's perfect that you enjoy it. Um, if people would like to get in touch or find out more about your work, about the work of IJM, what should they do? Uh, they can go to our website, ijmuk.org. Um, they're welcome to get in touch um, directly with me. Um, you and Doc Fraser at igmuk.org. Socials igmuk. Um, yeah, delighted to hear from people. Super. That's great. So I'm sure people will be in touch because there's loads there that I think would be really great to um, to find out more about. Uh, thank you again, Ewan, for your time. And thanks also to the listeners or the viewers. Until the next time, goodbye. Thanks again, Ewan, for this conversation. Thanks also to you for listening. All the links to information about the work featured in this episode are in the show notes. Find us on Twitter at Actions Podcast. You can watch the video recording of this discussion on our YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes. To get in touch or to suggest a topic to be featured in an episode, either direct message us on Twitter or alternatively email actionspodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts and feel free to leave a review. You've been listening to Actions, Responses to Trafficking podcast. Music used in this episode is Inspiration, written by Rayful Crux and sourced from freepd.com. Actions is produced and presented by Catherine Baldacchino.